0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing William S. Vincent. Based in Boston, Will has had a diverse career, starting out as a book editor at the publisher Houghton Mifflin, getting an MBA, becoming a, working for startups, becoming a software developer, and teaching computer science. Eventually, he successfully moved into a career uh, doing the roles that he's filling now of teaching, writing, and self-publishing, which he's been doing for the last two or more years. You can follow him on Twitter at WSV3000 and check out his website at WSVincent.com. Sign up for his newsletter at WSVincent.com newsletter. And you can listen to his interviews on the popular Django Chat podcast, which he co-hosts with his colleague, Carlton Gibson. Will is the author of three LeanPub books, Django for Beginners, Build Websites with Python and Django, Django for APIs, Build Web APIs with Python and Django, and, and uh, his latest book, Django for Professionals, Production Websites with Python and Django. In this interview, we're going to talk about Will's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience as an author. So thank you, Will, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, you've got an interesting one for uh, a <laughs> typical guest in comparison to the typical guest on this podcast. So I was wondering if you sure. could talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you first became interested in books and publishing.
1: Sure. Yeah, I loved your intro. So I have, I'm still working on the short version of my background, but um, but basically I grew up very non-technical. I grew up in Vermont, surrounded by books, no computers. Computers, this was the 90s, were always broken and buggy. And I had to kind of fix it for my family, but I always hated doing it. So I never thought I'd be involved with computers. Uh, and started my career, as you mentioned, as a book editor and am now publishing books on programming. So I've gone kind of full circle, but I really came to it later in life. Um, I came to it basically, I was, a, I was working in publishing. I was a book editor dream job, going extremely well. And then I saw Amazon coming in. Uh, so this is two thousand six, seven, eight, and I saw them just completely dominating the publishers. I saw the publishers sticking their head in the sand. And I thought, and I saw the colleagues that I aspired to be getting fired with no good job prospects. So I thought, well, I'm 26. Uh, I'm going to figure something out here. And, so and, I and, learned.
0: Yeah, just just to just to pause you there because this is such an interesting moment. I don't really want to sort of get get over it too quickly. So you oh, sure. so you studied history in university if I'm if I'm correct. Um, yeah,
1: hi- history from LinkedIn. His, History is the major. Yeah, history, econ, lots of stuff.
0: Yeah, and 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 you and you decided to go into the public the book publishing industry to be an, an editor, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. Yes, I mean, so editing is, most people don't understand what editing is. I mean, I was I have an MBA, so I have years of experience explaining it. I mean, it's really not staring at a paper editing. I mean, that's a tiny, tiny part of it. it really, it's, really it's you know, this is an abused term now, but really it's a product manager, except I would say more, because you're a modern book editor is doing acquisitions, so you're dealing with uh, agents, you're negotiating lots of stuff on that. You're doing the editing, but you're also really in charge internally of the whole publishing pipeline. So you go through all the, you acquire the book, you go through all the edits and then you hand it off to copy editing. Then there's marketing, publicity, jackets, all the rest. It's published. Then a year later you come through for paperback and you're doing this for, you know, there's, depends on the publishing house, but two or three seasons a year. So it worked out for me, I was doing about 15 books a year it, but, at any one time, I was working on forty five different books.
0: And when you say acquire a book," how did that process work in your experience?
1: Oh yeah, so this so this is a traditional uh, trade model. so i'd actually I'd also worked in academic publishing in college and before where there's really no advances, but trade publishing is kind of the books you would buy in a bookstore. So I was uh, nonfiction fiction, best American series. But the way it works in the modern world is you have agents um, because there's so much volume. So as an editor, you have relationships with agents and there's a a small number of major agencies that will do a book proposal. Um, So I can, so a book proposal is, would come in and usually it's 20 to 40 pages and it basically lays out the background of the book. So fiction it has a writing sample sort of gives hints to the plot. Um, There you're evaluating on how good is the writer? Do they have a platform? platform is not really that important. Um, nonfiction is all about platform. So platform would be, it's a book on psychology and it's a professor at Dartmouth college. And, um, it's much more about who they are and what the topic is. And then it's just assumed it's less about the writing quality, but anyways, you get, so you get, uh, proposals all the time from agents and you're reading those. We have, um, assistant who reads those for you. So I started off as an assistant and worked my way up. And then if you like a book, the agent ideally from the agent's point of view will have a book auction. So if they have three editors involved, they'll have a it's works. It's like a blind bid auction and basically they want to get as much money as possible. And there's a couple levers around, you know, advance and other things you can negotiate, but it's very commerce heavy I guess is the point it's the amount of time you spend actually editing. Like the only editing time I spent was like nights and weekends in the office. It was nonstop product management and trying to acquire books.
0: And it's, it's real. Thank you for that great explanation. Uh, it's one of those things that like for a lot of people, they only know it from the other side. Um, yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and they only, they, they are, they only know they, they will ever only know it from the other side, which is from the side of the, the aspiring author. Um, and from their perspective, it's funny, you know, you bring it sort of modestly, you know, like what it's like explaining what an edit book editor does to, to a sort of stereotypical MBA, but to, to, to aspiring authors, a book editor is, uh, the gatekeeper, um, Yes, but it's
1: any- not the gatekeeper. It's the agent. I suppose. It's actually the agent. No, 100%. The best editors become agents for their authors. Like John Grisham's editor became his agent. And here, I'll tell you why. Because agents get a percentage. Agents get 15% usually of earnings from an author, whereas the editor is very poorly paid. So, you know, you're crazy to kind of stay an editor unless you really like doing it or you don't want to be... An Agent so and it gets more and more pre-processed. So a lot of times so John Grisham's um, Agent, you know, well, I doubt that that publishing house does much editing to the book I that's done. They kind of do it before and present it as is because of who he is as an author but the number the thing is editors can't look at just from a volume perspective can't look at unsolicited manuscripts and actually often won't because someone someone sends in this is this is like movie studios and scripts they won't look at something that's unsolicited because if you send in an idea and then they do a movie you can sue them and say oh I pitched you that idea and I have proof that you know your mail office opened that thing and so you were inspired by it and so you have to pay me Right. so in books, there's not enough money so people don't really get libelous about it but that's the same reason so the number one advice for a trade book author is get an agent. Now, technical books, which we can talk about, you don't have agents involved, but if you want to, you know, the great American novel or a big pop nonfiction Malcolm Gladwell thing, uh, if you get the right agent, you will get a book contract.
0: Okay. I see. But I still, so I guess I, I just used the wrong terminology, but so that like the, so first you need an agent, that person is the gate. Keeper uh, for your entry into the book publishing world, but then then there needs to be someone at a book company who participates in an at a publishing company that participates in an auction that is initiated by the agent, and then yes, someone in the, and then those ideally from the agents and the authors perspective, there's all these book acquirers competing to offer yeah. the highest price for the for
1: yeah, the and that's the value that an agent brings is that they understand the marketplace, they understand the editors, um, they. Yeah, you know, they sort of drive up the prices, but they also save everyone time. So they know when they get a when they get a proposal and they know they're thinking, Oh, you know, will at Houghton would be good for this. They're sort of calculating. So if they invest the time because they're not getting paid up front for their work, so they only get paid if they sell something. So they're heavily invested in the success of their authors. And there's a, you know, as in anything, there is a very strong hierarchy of uh, agents. So, If I, you know, I could list a couple, if you, if they selected your work, you you know, you're going to do well. I see. I see. It it may not be a best-selling book, but you'll get a good advance and it will definitely be acquired.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. You bring up this concept of hierarchy uh, because book, the book publishing industry, the trade book publishing industry has its own unique, unique culture. You, you know, you mentioned there's distinctions between nonfiction and fiction in various ways and, and the world of fiction and especially like high literature uh, has, has its own culture and I bring that up because I wanted to then, then now get to where I interrupted you, which is there you are in the mid two thousands, around the time Kindle is coming out, uh, and you see these publishers with their heads in the sand—a situation which many people feel persists to this day. It does. I, I remember being at a conference at the Book Expo America conference uh, in mm-hmm. New York. I think this was 2013, so it's a while ago now. And I, I think it was—I'm—I'm going to—I pro- might get the companies wrong, but there was this panel and i think it was the ceo of simon and schuster had the ceo of overdrive waving an ipad kind of aggressively in her direction saying this isn't a science experiment you know this is real and and you know this this ceo of simon and schuster was is on lists of like the top 50 most influential women in america and here sure. you have someone sort of just he wasn't trying to be rude he was just so he he couldn't believe that you know the the top people at the top of the publishing industry were and I'm not, I'm not making any particular claims about the CEO of Simon Schuster myself, but he was clear this guy was clearly exasperated at, at his situation that this technology, even in 2013, was being not kind of ignored.
1: Well, so I have a perspective on this. Uh, further, there's been rapid consolidation in the industry. So Houghton was um, bought, it had been bought and sold once before by the private equity groups, which... A whole separate thing I get not in, get into and then was merging with Harcourt while I was there. So basically because the industry was sort of on a downward trend, which continues today, they, you know, they were just firing people and cutting out marketing and publicity and sales and, you know, make basically making it less fun because people always knew that you weren't going to be rich in publishing, but they enjoyed doing it. They enjoyed the work. And then basically these conglomerates came in and in my opinion, killed that. So when I went to business school, a lot of it was, I I was saying, yeah, exactly that. Why don't they see reality? And I, so I, I have more empathy, I guess, for their perspective, which is that just as in any field that's being disrupted by technology, someone who's at the top of a publishing house. So they spent their entire career in publishing, traditional publishing, right? 20, 30 years. They're only there for two to four or five years max. So even if they are totally convinced and even if they think they can start implementing the changes, all they're going to end up doing is firing a ton of people and pissing off all their colleagues. And then the next person is going to get the credit for it. Like there's no incentive to make that huge break because they see that it's coming, but all their money is made on the traditional uh, way. You know, the whole staffing model. So, so Kindle was paying to digitize the books because the publishers, including Houghton didn't want to do it because they're like, well, why would we spend money on this? They make the, you know, the economic side of it too. You make way less on a ebook. Plus publishers are paranoid about, um, piracy, which as a technical book author <laughs> I think is hilarious because your average, you know, fiction reader isn't able to pirate books. Um, but yeah, they're just in a tough situation. I mean, that doesn't, I'm still frustrated by them. And I think, The industry has to change. But, I mean, my colleagues today who have stayed in the industry, what's happened is because you can self-publish, you know, with LeanPub or just on Amazon, you know, Amazon, you can take a Word doc and publish it. So the role of agents, the role of editors, now they just look at the self-published list and they, you know, do book contracts based on that. The problem is, is that the value of a traditional book publisher has Greatly diminished in my opinion from what it used to be, you know as an editor You're not afforded the time to spend with authors that you used to have. So I I was working on 15 books a year You know, that's 45 books at a time. That's a lot of books I couldn't spend anywhere anywhere near as much time on them as I wanted So they had to come in fairly polished basically um The other issue is the marketing publicity budgets were just slashed because that's an easy thing to gut Plus, publicity, what did they used to do? They used to call up their friend at the New York Times or whatever paper and get reviews. Well, all those people have lost their jobs. So there's really nothing for those folks to do, right? So the whole industry is feeling its contraction. You have the book layout people, they love doing beautiful book layouts for print. They don't want to spend any time on the ebook one. Plus, ebook is hard to do because you have, well, you had Kindle, Kobo, and all, all these different ones. So it's just, the whole system was designed for the traditional way. And you know, if you're in charge of these organizations, nobody in your organization is except maybe your investors is excited about the transition towards electronic. Plus the costs are lower. You know, when I was there too, you had the issue of Apple and Amazon where with the pricing wars and um, you know, so everyone sees the threat, but no one can have the solution. And I don't think the solution is going to come internally and just, um,
0: to, just to continue with the pile on for the unfortunate book publishing industry.
1: Um, I, <laughs> I have empathy I, for them, yeah.
0: yeah. No no I know I know I know I know I know. Um uh, and I I was listening to a podcast preparing for this another interview you did and you you mentioned that you know
1: even even the importance of the publisher's brand. Is, oh yeah, nobody is cares. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was always pretty small, but it's it's like a movie, right? Between, before every movie there's a long list of producers and movie studios, that's purely backscratching for the industry. I mean, at the end of the day, nobody cares if it's Hoden or Knopf or self-published book. If if there are any people who care, they're not really who you want to deal with anyways. And that's just because, you know, so these days, if you're a publisher, and I know this firsthand because I've helped some people get published, if you go to a traditional publisher, they will say, well, you know, you have to bring your marketing with you. They'll say part of the proposal is saying, well, I've got 20,000 people on my newsletter, authors will hire out of their own pocket publicists. You know, so uh, not to mention the cycle is very long and slow. I mean, we had issues where I had an author who was very prolific, a fiction writer, Rick Bass, and we had to push him back and hold him back because we didn't it didn't fit the sales cycle of Houghton to have a new book from him every year. We needed some space, you know, which is crazy because he just wanted to put it out. But that's just the system that you're dealing with. So at the end of the day, and I think I'd say the number one thing, though, that (laughs) traditional publishers are doing wrong is they've completely gutted the mid list. So it used to be the case that uh, every season, so Houghton, Simon Schuster, Pick Your Place, they have one or two books that they've paid millions of dollars for that's sort of like their lead book. So I, I remember like Hillary Clinton's, you know, biography is one of them. So a book like that, that everyone's heard of, Barack Obama. Um, you use that as everyone in the company is excited around that and you use that in the negotiations negotiations with Barnes and Noble, which doesn't really exist anymore, <laughs> um, as sort of the lead. And then you slowly get down the list of, you know, if it's 40 books, you're putting out that term. Um, so everyone's anchored around that big book. But then the but you never make money on those books because you pay a huge advance. You pay a seven-figure advance. So that's just sort of a cost of doing business, and it makes everyone internally feel good. And at the end of the day, it's not the editors. Editors are not judged on like the return, the ROI. I mean, that's the, the sort of the messed up thing about the industry, if you have a business mind, which I do, is that as an editor, you are incentivized to pay more. Because nobody judges you on the, the return of investment on your book, all that you can say is, oh, I published, I'm the editor on Hillary Clinton's book. Well, how are you the editor? Cause I paid the most. Well, how'd you pay the most? Cause I convinced my publisher. So then agents say, oh, Will's a $2 million guy. Now he has up to a $2 million budget. Right. And then usually I would leave every two or three years and bounce publishing houses. So by the time the book even comes out, I'm long gone. I guarantee you no one is doing any accounting of all the costs of it. So, Anyway, so that dynamic is messed up, but it's the midlist where all the money is made. So the midlist, and that's where mainly where I was focused as a junior, ed- you know, younger editor at the time. That's when you take a chance on someone. That's when you pay 50,000, 100,000 um and then it sells like a million dollar book. That's where they make all their money, that in the backlist. Um, but they've gutted out the midlist because it's expensive and it's it's error prone. Uh, and all the people there still want to work on those big books. You know, they want to buy the important books like um, Philip Roth. We published him at Houghton. We paid a lot for his books, more than almost all of them sold. Um, so you're left with the big books that you lose money on. You get out the mid list, you get out marketing publicity, and, you know, it makes for a challenging environment. Still with fantastic people working in there, but at least for me, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not... I have options at this point. I'm still young, so I'm going to go see what else is out there.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, that wonderful explanation. Uh, it's, uh, it's,
1: <laughs> Don't get me going. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, no, it's, it's, it's great. One of the curious things, I mean, people can be romantic about anything, but there is a, a peculiar, peculiar kind of romance around book publishing because publishing a book can be seen by people as elevating their social standing in a way that's kind of unique to book publishing, I think.
1: Yeah, well, that's what, I, so I always ask people if they ask me for advice on book, you know, book publishing, if they should self publish or traditional publish, um, you know, what's your goal? So most people, especially in being curious, your experience interviewing authors, most people's goal is to publish a book, it is not to make money. Um, and furthermore, they need the handholding. And most people, despite all the things I've just said, will hear me say that, and they will still want to go with whatever press is, makes a big impression in their mind if it's a technical press, if it's a, you know, a fiction press. Um, so you can't really beat that out of people. Um, and that's fine. That's, what, you know, it's easier to not self-publish. There's a lot of stuff you got to do, even with a great technology like Lean Pub. There's a lot of steps you got to do. And, you know, if you need an editor to ride your, to ride you to get things done and, you know, there's some advantage there, you'll just it's almost impossible. You'll make any real money off it, but that's fine, right? It's about an ego stroke or it's a marketing expense for a consultant. Like these are the traditional reasons. But for me, when I started publishing books, you know, I was doing it thinking, well, this will be my business. And I also knew how the sausage was made. And so, and there's no advances in technical book publishing basically. So, so that's why I sort of opted in And You know, now I'm in a position where, you know, with the with the sales of my books, all the regular publishers approach me all the time saying, well, why don't you come publish with us? And it's like, well, I I would love to, I always want to hear, I'm like, why do you think I would want to do that? Like, why would I go from 90 something percent to 30 percent for an already published book where I've done all the work, I've done all the updates, I've done all the marketing. You know, there's no value there, but I think there is value if you're just, you know, a professional programmer and you don't, you need the handholding and you just want to get a book out. But for someone who's already kind of along the way, um, the value proposition isn't there.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that perspective. I mean, I I actually have interviewed a couple of people who did have uh, the romance beaten out of them. Um, I remember one <laughs> one guy in particular. So he he was a technical book author and he you know submitted to one of the big name technical book uh, publishers. And he got the email and he's like, I just went skipping out of the house, you know, and I was on cloud nine and he's like fast forward a year and uh, it was a nightmare. And what particularly frustrated him was the fact that the book was done and they're like, it's going to be six months until it comes out because we've got to, you know, do our formatting and copy editing and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. And they print it overseas so they can't print on demand. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he and he he found that just incredibly Heartbreaking because yeah. he was seeing the technology get older and older as his book was not coming out. But the words, the words were done, and the code samples were done. Everything was done. Yeah, and, and then he saw that there's like behind the romance of the big name and have seeing your name on the shelf, which is an amazing thing. Is this real, actual business uh, that yeah isn't necess- that isn't romantic and doesn't necessarily always work very well. And no matter how well meaning or well intentioned people are, you know, it can end up be- putting you in a bad place. But as you say, like you know, if you are just starting out, then getting Getting a book published by publisher that can help get you some respect that you might not have otherwise got is worth, mm-hmm. is worth all the money in the world in a way in in the in the long run and it's not necessarily for the the particular royalties that you're going to get on a book that you primarily get value out of it.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and I think even you know so one of the uh, I think one of the best technical book publishers is No Starch Press who I know some of the folks there they have their contracts online they're they're public um, so you can go and look at those. But yeah, you shouldn't, you should never write a book for money. Um, I, even though I did that, <laughs> um, you should never assume that that's going to make money. And I think, you know, but I think also just the form, and this is probably an existential thing for LeanPub. And actually, you guys are probably seeing this because, you know, you have video courses. There's some issues with, I often wonder, is book format appropriate for Uh, certainly for framework books. So I've written three books on Django Web Framework. Every nine months, a new version comes out. So, you know, it's bad enough for programming languages, which there's updates, but it's not a major thing where it's every couple of years. But every nine months, I mean, you simply couldn't publish that with a traditional publisher. So there's, and if you notice, actually, there's almost no Django books out there, even though Django is partly because it updates all the time. People get burned out and, you know, people they just don't want to do the work. Um, but the other thing is that there is this price ceiling on books where people don't want to pay more than $40 for a book. Um, they'll pay, you know, 60 80, uh, for a video. And if you look at the amount of content in, I won't name names, but you know, a two, three hour video that's 40, 50 pages worth of stuff. Like my new book is almost 400 pages right so you know it's sort of my fault for putting too much out there but the value proposition is way off with books um just as just as a genre so i don't know i mean i love physical books i often ask people cuz i sell digital books i sell kindle and i sell paperback and i ask people which do you prefer and um i don't really see a, a strong split based on age or you know there's a lot of people who like a physical book um but there's a lot of people who you know like updates too so
0: yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, this is normally, we certainly save this part of the conversation for, for near near the end. But, uh, you know, this, 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 the view from 30,000 feet here is that educating people is very important and that more and more people are learning how to write software uh, or how to, how, to, how to program. Programming is becoming a more important part of our daily lives and how programming is taught How people learn about frameworks like Django is Mm -hmm. actually a really important part of like that drives our economy and our daily lives. And the whole industry is trying to figure out what to do. We're still we still I mean, programming and software have been around for decades and decades. But there's something about our current moment where things are changing and there was a a response. One one sort of response to this was uh, MOOCs. Um, For example, Massively Open Online Courses, which are largely video-based. And one of the things that Will's bringing up is that, and we've actually encountered this with um, people with Udemy courses, for example, that are heavily video-based. They're like, wait a minute, it takes me like 100 hours to shoot the course, and then it's going to change every year? Yeah. You know, so particularly with, there are certain subjects like the history of Rome where like, you know, you're probably not going to have to reshoot that course more than once every five years or so. And even yeah. then you're being kind of precious about being up to date with the latest scholarship. But there, yeah. are, there are other things where the video, the video format like Khan Academy and things like that is actually seems like at first glance and for many people is very useful in their first touch with it. But when you're on the creation side, you realize how quickly things go out of they're, they're no longer current.
1: Yeah, the production cost is way higher than text.
0: Yeah, and so and so one solution to this is the is the ebook and platforms like Leanpub, where like you make it really dead easy to update mm-hmm. to update things and to issue those updates not only to not only to all your existing readers, people who've already bought your book, but then once your book is updated, all future readers have a fully updated book. So it, the the book remains as long as you're doing the work to update the words right. and the code, it remains current. And it's probably the case that. The ebook format is if you're monetizing it, right? Otherwise, you Mm -hmm. just have a blog, just have a blog or something like that. But if you if you want to monetize it as a sort of defined product, then an ebook, as long as it's got this in in progress or easily updatable publishing side of it, uh, then that that's actually probably a really good solution. But our courses are actually we so Leanpub has a courses thing, and we spent a long time with some very sophisticated people developing this. And it's interesting that when we say like we've got courses, people often automatically think videos, mm-hmm. uh, but in our head, although you can't put videos in them, like, you know, you put them up on YouTube and then you can have them in your, in your lean pub course. I mean, in my, yeah. I was, I was kind of naively surprised when people reacted that way. Cause to me, I was always thinking text. Um, mm. and cause from our perspective, one, one of our hypotheses is that every technical book should actually have an like let's say let's narrow it down every pro- programming book should have an accompanying course mm-hmm. that you can take because a if you've already written the book if you're the author of it then c- turning it into a course is basically like well now let's create some exercises and and you know assign some grades to the quizzes and if you're a reader you get to prove to yourself but then with the certif- certificate that you get at the end you actually right. get to prove to other people so you, like in the current state of affairs you read it on un- you read a, a programming book and then you tell people you did so so but on, if you've got an accompanying course where someone can get certificate then they've got this kind of social and professional proof that they've actually done it so it actually increases the value of reading and going through the book to, to the reader to have an accompanying course that you can take so this, yeah,
1: is, this it's, is our theory so i think your hypothesis is correct cuz i but i think it's an interesting time cuz nobody's quite figured out what people want and partly it's thinking about what are the customer buckets uh, to me there's a very small number of people who can make money from out-of-pocket purchases by individuals who don't care about, you know, they don't care about accreditation. So they just want to learn it and sort of prove it. Most of the money is some sort of accreditation thing or it's a a company account. You know, so this is the rise of, uh, you know, Lynda.com, which is now LinkedIn, Pluralsight, and O'Reilly would be the three large ones where a lot of companies will just have a subscription. And I've been next to people. They're like, oh, yeah, I can learn Django. Like I've got a subscription and there's, you know, 30 courses on Django, all from 30 different individual contributors. And there's, you know, I would say no kind of quality control. But these people, these companies, um, that's it's easy to buy. Right. They, They want a one stop shop because the person who's in charge of professional development is HR. Even in a tech company, it is not developers. So while I would like, you know, the GitHub model where they just give developers, I think it's $100 a month and let them. Buy what they want with it, like that would be great. Quality would win out. That's not how it works. Companies want to have control and they want this accreditation. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't know. I think you guys are on the right track. I mean, I, I find it almost, you know, there's a disconnect between the value that's being added by technical book authors and what <laughs> they're receiving. I mean, I have, I can see email addresses of, of uh, people I interact with and buy my books. You know, it's, it's undergrads that pick all the top engineering schools in the US and globally, it's professors at these schools, you know, it's career people who have been doing Python, in my case, been doing Python for 10 years, but never done web development and they did learning Django. So, you know, the value is immense, but it does come down to kind of why is someone doing it? And I think this is the problem MOOCs had is MOOCs, they came out with MOocs and it was like all these super educated people who are like learning for fun you know engineers and guess what that's not most people right most people aren't taking artificial intelligence for fun at a graduate level they need to learn like excel and get a check mark so they can get a promotion at work um, and that's what most moocs are finding and that's why they're sort of transitioning away from that same thing with books like most people as a developer we assume everyone thinks the way we do and most people are not lifelong learners they're not really into this they're just kind of doing what they need to do. And, um, you know, anyways, accreditation is easier to get when it proves something and when someone else pays for it and when you have to do it, like, so that's, I'm biased because the people I deal with are kind of the best students in the world because they've already, you know, chosen my stuff and paid for it. So even when I teach in a classroom setting, like, yeah, it all comes down to like, who is the, who's the client?
0: Speaking of lifelong learners, I'm going to use that as a very cheesy segue opportunity to get back to your career. So sure. you are there in the publishing industry, and you realize that it's not going in the direction you think it should, and you decide to get an MBA. And then you, I believe, moved to San Francisco and started working for a company there. Is that correct in the timeline?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I wanted to move the other side of the country and you know move from a very traditional industry to startup. Um, and as actually, while I was in business school, as I was leaving Publishing. I noticed that we were spending thousands of dollars. Our marketing budget was just for someone to build a website for these authors' books, and I thought, well, I could learn that. So I actually learned that and um, had a side business throughout business school, building um, websites for authors. So when I then applied to jobs, I was, you know, I wasn't a programmer, but I had some technical ability, and um, and I ended up joining. I was I I had a I was fortunate enough to have a couple offers, and I chose the by far the riskiest one. It was a small education startup in a room. One of the founders was still in college. um, And that was called Quizlet, which is now the largest education site in the US. So that was a whole separate story. Um, But I was there for three years. And at the end of that was like, okay, now what do I do? And decided the one gaping hole in my um, background was being truly technical. You know, I, I could sort of build stuff, but I couldn't really build it. And all my MBA colleagues were raising. This is go-go time. So raising money and hiring developers. And I worked a lot on hiring out the initial team at Quizlet. And I didn't really want to spend two more years hiring out people because most startups fail. So I thought, well, I'll learn how to code for real. And then even if my startup fails, I've got, you know, another feather in my cap in terms of knowledge. Um, and so I did that and a couple ups and downs with startups, you know, uh, one failed... Another, um, didn't do as well. Another was acquired and it was the last one that was acquired after that was acquired was when I started writing the books because these, I, were do... these
0: only in the education space, sorry.
1: Um, um, one of them was, so the first one I did was a school rating site. This is the one I went off and did on my own, uh, initially. So competing with great schools, because if you're moving as I was, you want to know what's the deal with local schools. Um, all the data is publicly available. Um, I could go on and on about that. So I built, I would say, a, a better product than Great Schools, but people don't really want ratings; they just think that they do. And the companies like Zillow and Trulia, at the time, were in a marketing war. So the affiliate um, fees that they were paying were quite high. But then they decided to stop fighting; they merged. And um, Great Schools is a nonprofit that does an okay job, and that's sort of enough for people. Um, yeah. So yeah. So then two, yeah. So two, and then two startups after that. I taught at Williams College and then had a little bit of space after this acquisition and um you know i had found learning how to program because i came to it later in life and i'm i'm certainly not a genius but i i have a brain and i found it the most frustrating thing i'd ever done in my life and i largely came to the conclusion it was because the resources for learning it were terrible they just made no sense and most programmers learned at such a young age that they just totally and had zero perspective on what it was like to be a learner so you know, because when you're 10 or 13 or 14, everything just seems normal, and you just forget what you've learned. But I came to it as an adult, and I had, you know, it seared into me the pain points of learning, and I basically had all these notes that I'd written for myself just to not forget things with different frameworks. Um, Django was one of several frameworks I worked with professionally, um, and I just happened to like Django the best. And so, so the first book I wrote, Django for Beginners, I put it up on a website. It was my own notes and then that started getting really good traffic and at some point i thought yeah i'll make it a book i mean nobody can stop me
0: it's it's really interesting um one of the things i heard you say and i might i might get it slightly wrong in an interview um that i was listening to before this podcast was that programming endemic to programming culture is often a lot of posturing about how smart you are yeah <laughs> kind of, and, and in, 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 even worse than posturing like sometimes people fully fully convinced uh but and so uh, now, I've got to say personally, like I've, you know, I'm a former investment banker, so I'm familiar with the, the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the particular one particular manifestation of it is people don't want to ask for help and people sometimes and because it because then that means you're not smart and people will take the opportunity to represent you as not being smart. And it can often be uh, an environment in which questions are answered aggressively uh, yeah. and where people Will not go into detail because, again, that's not something that a really smart guy would do. Um, hmm. And now, but uh, but on the flip side, in programming, because people are often have an engineering mindset, they like they they do kind of like helping. So there's this weird this weird.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, I I, I think I'm trying to remember the you know where where I said that comment. I mean, so I often think because I came from a sports background and business, and so I love the engineering mindset of helping and sort of not caring about anything other than working on the work, but there is, you know, and this might be specific to the startup scene in San Francisco in 2010 onwards when I was there where you had a lot of people who were special because they knew how to program and you have companies like Google where it's just completely tiered. Well, it used to be two tiers. Now it's three tiers with contract people. But if you were a programmer coming out of college, you made a hundred thousand. And if you came in as an ad rep, you made 50 and it just went from there. And so, you know, if you're young and impressionable, you, you feel like you have a superpower. Um, this was before boot camps came around. So, you know, you really only could learn programming if you, uh, I'm going to generalize here, but if you basically had spent your teenage years with a computer and not, you know, playing sports, not doing these normal things, because you kind of had to have spent that time to learn all these things. And so you just learned by osmosis and chat rooms. And so you didn't feel the pain of there's no learning, there's no learning structure, you just sort of absorbed it. And you felt different and probably a little bit ostracized. And then you come to San Francisco and you're like special, you know, you're, I mean, I was hiring developers right out of MIT and Stanford for more than I made as a, you know, Ivy League MBA. Right. I mean, that's partly why I was like, uh, again, I was like, wait, I've got a brain, like I could learn how to program. Um, so, you know, and it, I think it's, it hasn't gotten better. I mean, I mean, it's, it's great that people I mean, programmers are underpaid. So for the value to provide, even at Google, if you're getting paid, you know, mid six figures, you're getting underpaid for the value you're providing to the company. But just because you have a, you know, did a boot camp and now you make six figures, you know, experience does matter. But, you know, in the programming field, experience is often not valued, um, which is, you know, I'm 38 now. So, you know, it's not like medicine where you get older or finance, right? People sort of tend to, maybe not investment banking, I think investment banking, they, they like experience, but in tech, experience is sort of a dirty word, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I never made it to the sort of upper echelons, but at, at the top, it's all networks.
1: Uh, and that's, oh, what, everything that's is sales. You,
0: that's what you build up over time is is influence and people you can call upon and things like that.
1: Right. Well, that's what I would tell my, there were a number of classmates in business school who had been engineers, um, specifically software engineers, and they loved like the advanced modeling classes and finance. And I was always telling them, you need to go out for drinks with your classmates. Like the work we're doing in this first year class is more than you will do at Goldman Sachs. Um, I actually, I spent a summer as an investment banking analyst too, but.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> it's really interesting. If we ever meet in real life, we can have some beers over that kind of thing. It's, it's, a, it's an intense experience. Um,
1: yeah. So basically, so I love engineers, and I did say that because I do see that like posturing um, sometimes. Uh, but I think on the spectrum, it's less so than other industries, um, and that's one of the things I like about coding. Is at the end of the day, it's like you can prove it, show it, or not. Um, and generally, now that I have more experience, you know, if, if someone comes across as super braggy to me, I mean, I know. I mean, I. I you know, in the Django world, I know all the top people, not a single one of them is braggy. They are modest to an incredible fault. So if I see someone who, you know, as an engineer who's bragging, that's an immediate red flag for me and I think most other engineers, whereas it's sort of a prerequisite sometimes in other fields. But in engineering, that's like a, huh, well, I, you know, the best people don't think they're the best. So I'm not sure where you're getting that idea about yourself.
0: Um, And so you then decided at a certain point that you wanted to ha- make a go of a career uh, teaching people and writing, writing books about things like Django. Um, mm-hmm. And what was, your, what was your first step? Was it writing a book?
1: So the first step was, so I, ta- so I taught uh, at Williams College, I taught a web development course, actually with Meteor.js, which is a JavaScript framework. And I love doing that. Um, but as all adjuncts will know, you're paid nothing Um, (laughs) you're paid nothing and it's a lot of work, so it doesn't really work, you know, in a professional setting. Um, but I've always loved teaching. I, I, I mentored and tutored throughout school and, um, actually for after graduating for a summer, I taught middle school. Uh, so I've always had that in me and you kind of have to, because there's no economic reason to teach. Um, it doesn't make any sense, but I started uh, putting my stuff online on websites, so I had the Django for site, and really I got sort of community proofreading because I wasn't people would spot things and I had comments, and it was a while before I turned that into a book. And um, you know, and then when I thought about oh, I'll make it a book, you know, that's I forget how I came across Leanpub, but you know, I was used to the traditional way of using InDesign and realized like oh god, like that's a it's a lot of work to do this. And then when I saw Leanpub, I think it was is one of the authors, I think it was, yeah, an author, an author I respected, I asked him and he said he used LeanPub and then once, and, that, and that's how I came across um, your service. And then it was just like, wow, like this is a total no brainer, makes everything so much easier. And, um, and, you know, there are some was it open Libre, there's some open source options, but I found them, um, you know, you guys provide a lot more value. Um, so yeah.
0: And you, as I understand it, um, just now now we'll transition to the, the last part of the uh, interview where we talk sort of in the weeds about the self-publishing and, you know, how to be sure. a self-published author. Um, as I understand it, so your approach is to use LeanPub to make the books and to update the books, but your primary sales channels are not the LeanPub bookstore.
1: Yes. One, well, you can decide if you want to include this or not. Yeah, so that's correct. I... Just, so, just,
0: yeah. Just, 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 just to preface this. So, of course, we would like it if everybody sold all their books and praised all their uh, yeah. attention on all, all their effort on getting attention to their LeanPub book landing page or yeah. their LeanPub profile page. But we welcome authors who of all kinds who might even have no intention whatsoever of selling their books on our bookstore that's why we have subscription plans and things like that and we offer all offer all kinds of features and that's like output in pdf output put in epub output in mobi output in print ready pdf so that yeah. you can you can use leanpub and we we will love you very much if you never sell a book on our bookstore
1: yeah well so uh, again this is editing thing so uh, basically it was uh I actually had a lot of emails with, with Peter, which I give him credit for. Actually, I think you, too, maybe. I, I, now that I think of, a, of your name. Um, the, 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 so the royalty change. Um, you guys had that big one-page thing. And you the royalty rate changed from 95 to, what was it 90 or 80? And then you were like, okay, but we're going to grandfather it in. And then you're like, no, actually, we're just going to go um, across the board. And so that's when I switched to Gumroad predominantly um, because they uh pay more they pay every week and they give me the email addresses and those are three things lean pub at the time didn't um so i so i you know i'm not here to slag on you guys i can say that or i can sort of gloss around that
0: um no that's perfect that's i'm glad to have a frank discussion about it um so yeah so the way it worked was lean pub from its inception uh paid 90 minus percent 50 cents per transaction yeah and it was and then we decided at one point that we wanted to uh that you know For the sake of sustaining LeanPub in the long term, 80% was a better model than 90% minus 50 cents. And uh, we were very trepidatious uh, when we did this. Um, uh, And then, and what we did was we grandfathered in the old books. So if you already had published a book and you were already earning 90% minus 50 cents, we left you with that royalty structure. But then we decided, no, we want, we want just all books to be eighty percent, and we knew we knew some people would decide that that plus other other things, you know, like say for example, in the case of Gumroad, you know, weekly payments, which and just to get into the business details of things like that. So for example, one of the reasons we don't do weekly payments is because we have a forty-five day refund period, yeah. which is very important part of of how we position ourselves and how we brand ourselves. It's that you can buy a Leanpub book. And if you don't like it, you can return it with a couple of clicks. Uh, we give you forty five days to do that. And the reason for that is that Lean Pub is focused on optimizing the self publishing process for in published in progress published books. So if yeah. someone if someone if someone write we can't like you know, it wouldn't it just wouldn't fit our business model to have a refund window that was much shorter than 45 days because then we're saying to authors in order to prove to people that you're still working on your book you have to sort of publish a new chapter every month or something like that and so oh, that's, huh. that's one of the reasons for the 45 days and the emails thing so when someone buys a lean pub book or they sign up to be informed about, about when one is published they actually do have the opportunity to share their email address with the author yeah but, but we don't make it mandatory and we believe me wick we've had discussions with people who are much less friendly about it than you are
1: oh i, I felt like i wasn't that friendly i feel bad but i gave it to you straight no, no yeah no, no, no I, I understand it's, yeah it's emails are a hard thing um on both ends for for stuff well i i mean i'll say one so one thing you guys do do which i really like is the ability to pay more um because that's something i've had heard from other authors and it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. And actually as a feedback for you, for, for y'all, I would love to be able to send a personal thanks to someone who does that. I don't have any way of, you know, it's anonymous to me. So if someone, you know, I've I've had some people who spent a hundred dollars on my book, um, I would love to send them a thanks, um, but I have no way of doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just, just for everyone listening, uh, another thing that we do that isn't very common is we have a variable pricing model, which means um, the author sets a minimum price for their book and a suggested price for their book. And so, when someone goes to a Limpa book landing page, it's set. There's this pricing slider that's set at the suggested price, and you can move it to the left all the way down to the minimum price. Or you can move it to the right and you can pay more than you have to for the book. And this actually does, does happen. It's something that I think a lot of sort of like industry stalwarts find quite... Or even just normal cynical people kind of <laughs> find surprising. But the actually, another giving the author an opportunity to send a thank you message in that case is a really good feature suggestion. I don't think we've had that before. Um, But one thing we have had before that's related to this and many people have asked for it over the years and we do intend to do it someday is basically a tip jar because often what someone does is they might buy a book. Even the minimum price might be free and then they read it, and they're like, "Oh, I really wish like I want to." Mm-hmm. Or they paid five bucks for it, and they're like, oh, "You know what? This is actually worth twenty bucks to me. What can mm-hmm. I do?" And currently, our sort of hack is to buy a new copy of the book, and then just archive one of the two copies in your library, uh, which is what we recommend. Oh, to interesting. To do. But uh, one thing, like now, now that you've mentioned this, when when we do implement the tip jar, we'll definitely think about how we can facilitate a thank you from the author for that because like especially if someone's like directly going out of their way to come back and pay again. Yeah. Um, that would be a, that would be a very good. That's a very good idea. Thanks for that suggestion.
1: Sure. Yeah, well and I think I mean my case is specific so I mean one of the things you, that you that Leanpub does do is it provides platforms. So beyond the book creation for which I think, you know, I use and is by far the best, there is the discovery aspect. So I still have sales on Leanpub from people just coming to Leanpub. Um, I mean meaningful sales uh, and there's the off, sh- off the shelf feature for advertising which I did I got the, the yearly thing and, that, and that's been helpful um, you know in my, in my case because I'm focusing currently on this full time and I have personal sites and I have a lot of SEO uh, I mean I have seven figure annual traffic to my personal site so um, that's not common so for that reason so you know as a, as a content creator I often think about I often ask people like how did you find my work Right. You know, if someone's on, you know, do they go directly to Amazon and stay within that world or then my site and then they go, you know, they read a blog post and they go to lean or they go somewhere else. They go to Amazon, you know, as a, as a creator, I would love, I would love to know cause that would be helpful. Um, and this is another thing that just the, the book paradigm, I increasingly um, wonder if it's the best format for certainly framework books um, versus, you know, website where people log in and you can track better, but then that's a whole ton of work. And you know, for me as a content creator, I want to create content, not do all this other stuff. Um, but that's actually one point I wanted to make, which is that I think the reason why people don't create technical content is you need three things to do it. You need to know how to code, you need to know how to teach, and then you need to know how to market. And almost nobody has all three. They certainly don't have the third one. And if they have the first two, generally they can do consulting or other things that pays way better and is more fun. So, um, you know, I'm sure for you guys as well like you pump out a great feature it's it, it's sometimes it's hard to understand that the mark how important marketing is but the more you do any business you go oh yeah like marketing like for me like I would love to write 10 more books. I've got I could write 10 more planned, but I should be spending my time promoting the three that I have. That's,
0: uh, that's thank you very much for saying that's really excellent advice and a really excellent way of putting it, you know, when you, when you there's different types of work that you have to do and marketing is, is not, it's not being lazy or, or whatever. Like this is just another phase of the, of the project and, and a, a bigger part of what, whatever it is that you're up to. And often you do as like, as a, people who want to create stuff and want to yeah. learn stuff and want to teach stuff, find it hard to sort of put all those tools down and just, you know, go do the marketing.
1: But, it doesn't feel good and you can't track it easily. Yeah.
0: But you, but you do need to sort of understand that there will peri- be periods of time in your campaign, let's call it, yeah. when you're doing very little of the learning and the teaching and the writing, and you're doing a lot of the, a lot of the promoting. And you, on, on, on that note, you, so I know that you have also experimented with selling on Amazon as well.
1: Yes, it's a very meaningful sales channel for me, and I use the, um, you know, create PDF feature that you guys have.
0: Right
1: for selling for selling print books on, on Amazon. for selling print books. Yeah, I mean, and because so Amazon has made a lot of changes recently. Um, and actually, I've emailed with with um, with your team that's been receptive to. They switched over from. Um, well, now they're doing KDP. They're doing their own self-publishing thing. So the format sizes have changed. Um, it used to be that you couldn't do seven by nine, which is the technical standard book size. It was only eight and a half by eleven. Um, but but yeah, so I can create the files, and because everything on Amazon is print on demand my books are, um, always up to date, which is fantastic. And uh, yeah.
0: And do you also sell e- eBooks through the, Amazon I
1: do stores? now, I do now. I, um, I sell Kindle there. Uh, you know, the hard thing about that is so the royalty rate really matters and this is something that doesn't matter to readers, but as a creator, it's a, it's really a kick in the nuts. Um, because it basically a print book is 60% minus, um, printing costs. So that works out to about 50%. So a $40 book, you get $20 for a Kindle book under 999, you get 70% um, minus uh, the transmission fee, which is totally bogus. So if you have any images in your book, as I do, that's another like dollar they're going to subtract out of it. Yeah. They charge a transmission fee for the network. So for example, if I charged 999 for my book, it wouldn't be that I get you know $7 it's more like 550 because i have images in it now anything over 999 they switch to 35% so on a $40 book 35% so you know that's what is that like $14 so i make $20 on a paperback book that is print on demand shipped and no returns whereas a kindle book which has returns and actually there's quite a lot of them i make 14 dollars on so uh, you know, so going forward, do I want to do Kindle? I kind of don't. Um, but for now, I'm just putting it out there. But you know, it's you know, and you can another thing too. Unlike Leanpub, I've emailed with Amazon. It is possible to do updates, but it is incredibly tricky and not designed to do updates. So if you have a book that stays up to date, like mine, again, it's I mean, so I sort of try to tell people. I recommend they go like LeanPub or another ebook route where they will get the updates then to go through Kindle itself.
0: Yeah, well, there's yeah, that's, there, there's a number of, I did not know about that transmission fee. That's, in, that's incredible. Uh, it's but, lovely. But So Amazon, for those listening who might not know, Amazon discourages sales of ebooks for more than nine ninety nine, And they do this by charging you, by, by paying you a lower royalty rate uh, when you cross that threshold.
1: Yeah, so a twenty dollar book makes the same as a ten dollar book. Yeah,
0: and so there's a like there's a lot of there's a lot of I mean, and you would know a lot about more about this than me, but like there is a deep fight in there about the concepts of what the value of a book is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when you we could talk about this for a long time, but like so, so someone would ask, so why would someone price an ebook at fifteen dollars? when they could make it more for nine ninety nine, dollars when they would actually make more money if they sold
1: it for $0. Oh, this $0. is another and, good point. Yeah.
0: And the reason is that the big publishing companies don't, didn't want people to think of books as being worth $9.99. They wanted to think of them as being worth fifteen ninety nine dollars or whatever. And so a lot of publishing companies would actually set a higher price of dinging the customer more than they would otherwise and yeah. get less themselves from that sale because they were trying to do some high-level positioning around what people's sense of what a book should cost would be.
1: Right. Well, and if you publish on Amazon as I do, you are not allowed to offer it for less anywhere else, or they have the right to yank your book. So for example, yeah, so I'm, I know I'm not allowed if they find it, they will, and they're pretty good at finding it. Um, so my book is the same price. So that's partly why, um, yeah, it, it limits your pricing. You know, on the other hand, I mean, it's easy to demonize Amazon. And I, I've done plenty of it. If you think about it as a self-published author, it is astounding that I can send a file in seven countries currently. It will print on demand, send, handle everything for me, and just give me a check, and then 13 countries for Kindle. And um, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, But it is, Um, you know, there is this tension in the format of... All books, and then especially um, technology books, with updates and all these other things.
0: This is actually what I was just going to say: was that one of the, I mean, Amazon. Just to be clear, like, is an amazing company in a lot of different ways, and like, you know, Leanpub probably wouldn't exist. It, would have, it exist if it hadn't been for a Kindle, for example. Um, but um, like the device, I mean, um, and and the normalization of the reading of ebooks and, and things like that. Um, hmm. But the, this this nine ninety nine pricing thing comes out of the non technical book world. Yes, yeah, so like also, the
1: romance fiction, exactly, and the
0: non-educational book world. So, yeah. with a technical book, one of the one of the reasons technical books and like technically programming and things like that, one of the reasons they can fetch a higher price than other books can is because the person who reads it makes more money after they read it. Yeah, uh, and so, for example, if or saves time, which people, you know, professionals often equate with money, right? So, if I if you if I can say to you hey buy my book for 40. They're like $40. Sounds like a lot for a book. You're like you can now bill yourself out as a higher level as a as a consultant or now you can get work done in an hour that would have taken you two before. Most professionals will be like I'd give you $400 for that.
1: Uh, right. It's if if I save you 5 hours, what is your billing rate? Um yeah. Well, it, and it is I mean as a as a teacher, basically the the you're selling to intermediate developers or professional developers who are in a time crunch because beginners won't pay for anything cause they don't know anything and they don't value stuff. So, you know, they're kind of out. You can use them for SEO. I mean, I write tons of stuff for beginners. I actually prefer total beginners, but they're very hard to monetize. Profession, you know, experts are very much like read the manual types. It's someone who's an intermediate leveling up developer or who's new to the technology or framework, or it's someone who, and I think there's more of them who knows what their time is worth and will say, okay, I, I trust this author. And, um, you know, for me, I buy books and resources all the time because I value my time and, uh, this stuff is hard. So, but you can't, you can't, you can't help, you can't, you know, you can't help people who don't want to be helped. You know, that's sort of the hard thing as a content creator. It's not really useful to bemoan the state of (laughs) who will purchase content.
0: Speaking of wanting to be helped, uh, that leads me to the last question that I always like to ask people on this podcast. So bracketing our royalty rate and how often we pay people, and uh, <laughs> and, and, and and making making people give their email address up in order to get a product. Uh, if there was one thing we bracketing those three things, if there was one thing we could change for you, like say build for you, or one thing we could fix for you, mm. uh, what would you ask us to do?
1: So that is a really good question. So I'm tempted to say one of two things. So one is around the market side of lean pub so the the promoting books if there's a way to you know if there's a way to you know i can advert other than the shelf more targeted advertising or marketing where you know maybe someone bought a python book or maybe someone bought another django book is there a way that they on the lean pub site or through some other mechanism can be told hey maybe you'd like you like that book, maybe you'd like something else. That would be something that would probably help sales in general. And certainly as an author would have value to me that I would pay for, uh, on the creation side. So, so my books using lean pub, they're not they're I've, I've only once had a complaint on the layout of my books. Um, but it would, and I don't know the answer to this, but you know, sometimes because of text and, and especially images, there are gaps on the the print books and I don't know what the answer to that is you know maybe if there was some <laughs> custom way I could go in and fixed you know an image or spacing here but sometimes in some of my books there is spacing issues where you know largely it's like oh there's you know three paragraphs left but an image is six paragraphs long so it just bumps down and that wouldn't happen on a professionally designed book but the professionally designed book couldn't be updated all the time. So it's a tension I'm willing to take. And I don't know if there's a way to spot or give an option to clean that up, but that would be something nice.
0: Thanks very much for both of those suggestions. Um, The first one is something that we're working on. Um, And the second thing is, if you come across that issue in one of your books, if you could send us like I guess if it's a print book, you might have to send us like a picture of it or something like that. But if you could, if you... Well, it's
1: in the PDF, right? It's in the print-ready oh, right PDF. Print
0: PDF. Okay, if you could...
1: Well, it would be, right? Of course it is, because it's yeah, guess, just... Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah, no, that, you know, you're exactly right. If, if you could point us to an example of that, then obviously we have the underlying manuscript as well. So we can then look, I can could, I could mm. talk to my colleague, Scott, about it, who's the expert on this kind of thing. So if you could just okay. flick us an, an email or something like that, pointing us up in the right place, we'll definitely look at that because that's the kind of thing we'd like to keep on top of. And the more, okay. the, the more detailed the example, you know, the better. So
1: Sure. Well, and I know from experience, I've had other things that I've emailed um your team about. And I've always gotten, actually, I recognize Scott's name as well as yours and um, Peter's. So, um, to the listeners, they, they really do listen. Um, you know, it's sort of like when I, when I wrote sort of the slightly angry letter, um, back in the day, the reason why I'm still using you guys is because you engaged with me and responded. And I know from working at startups that when someone is unhappy and takes the time to write you, they will then be, if you acknowledge them and answer their questions, they will then become your fiercest advocates because they're basically writing the letter says, I want you to make this better, not I've given up. Um, so you pro- you must have that as well, right? Like when you're dealing with customers, it's always like when they're really angry, I always try to think this is a really good thing because there's something I can do to make them happy. And if they, they, you know, they want to be convinced to stay.
0: Uh, yeah, what I would say is, um, first of all, we don't enjoy getting angry letters. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but um, and I, I actually didn't remember that you that you I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm not, I don't think I can send it to you after this. I don't know if it
1: matters, but I remember it. That's
0: okay. Um, uh, but, uh, we do like passionate, we do like it when people are passionate and we, one particular thing about being, I mean, you know, to circle back, like to being in the book business, a book is something that someone spends a lot of time on, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very important to them usually for a lot of different ways. Like it might be, this is how I'm going to get ahead in my career. It might be, this is going to be my platform for getting to give conference talks. It might be, this is just something I really care about. And so we're, we, we maybe face a little bit more passion than people do in other businesses or <laughs> kind of passion because someone's like, I've spent yeah. 200 hours on this and I told my grandma about it and now it came out and it looks bad or, or it's broken hmm. or, or something yeah. like that. And, or I'm on a deadline and things like that. And so we, and we welcome we welcome feedback. We welcome impassioned feedback, and if we do something that makes you mad, we would we we, we do we do want to hear that. And when someone takes the time to, I mean, if it's just a if it's just a fuck you, then like that's not useful. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Well, and
1: that's what I was gonna say. it' it's, it's detailed, concrete, yeah.
0: yeah. If it's a detailed argument, um, and and particular, maybe one of the reasons I didn't it didn't when you brought that up, it didn't have any kind of uh, emotional residue for me it was because like when we when we make big changes like that, we know you know there's going to be a reaction, and we know and like if someone comes back at us at length with like here's and they're smart and they know what they're doing, you know, that's really important to us because one thing we, I'm not saying we're going to reverse any of these decisions, but like one thing we're always open to is, you know, what, what the future is going to look like and mm-hmm. getting, getting, getting feedback, whether it's happy or not, um, yeah. is, is, is really important to us. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> um,
1: uh... <laughs> well, it's a strength, it's a strength of a company. I mean, cause it, um, yeah, you I mean, you know, you always want to know what what people think. And at least, at least for me, when I when I do get feedback, I find that almost every tech company, um, even if it's a top person, I will get a response and usually a pretty good one. If it's some sort of detailed, you know, it's not just a rage thing. It's, you know, this. I think this is this is off in some way. And this is why, um, you know, because it's Yeah. So it's a kudos to you guys that they listen. Well, thanks for
0: thanks for sticking with us. Um, and thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, I really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for continuing to be a Lean Pub author.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. I, I actually I don't get to talk about publishing with anyone anymore. So this is brings me back to my old days. So I it's fun. Thanks.
0: And thanks as always to all of you for listening to the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author, please visit our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.